0: So I wanted to kind of relate the things that we talked about before. Uh, so obviously, we were in the games, whether it was toys or video games. And through our experiences, I feel we grow as individuals. Uh, but more importantly, become more opinionated and understanding things that we like. A time where we both placed our understandings and opinions that into a real type of asset, per se. In the real world, sneakers. Talk to me about how you got into sneakers and what kind of impact the sneakers make on your life then
1: and even now. More of a flipping aspect i wasn't too big on the actual shoes i mean i had some sort of attachment to them but but you didn't have like shoes like what
0: do you remember what your first shoe was that you got at the mall or anything my like first that? shoe ever mm-hmm
1: I just remember when I was younger, the Skechers with the springs were like huge. Oh my God. Those things were insane. Dude. Bro, my parents got those. I came to school and everybody was like, they thought I was Michael Jordan or something. I could hop seven feet. They were
0: definitely like a staple when we were little. Obviously we got clowned on. When we got into middle school, I remember this one brief conversation I had with a friend. He was asking me the shoes I had. And, uh, he's like, oh yeah, so what other shoes you got? And it's like, oh, I got a couple pairs of Skechers as well. And he's like, Skechers? You gotta throw them stuff out. We don't wear Skechers here. But, um, you don't remember like the first shoe you bought, I mean, other than Skechers? I remember there were the, it
1: was this pair of LeBron 11s. I forget, it was the Hornets colorway. It Mm -hmm. was like purple and it had orange lining on the hexagons.
0: No, I get what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, no, those were dope. Obviously LeBron being at the peak during, you know, LeBron 11 coming out, you know, it's kind of like our guy or our goat. Did you watch LeBron or what inspired you to get those shoes? from the store or was it something your mom just picked up. i wasn't
1: even i wasn't even a basketball fan honestly well, what i remember very early on is uh i had this pair of kobe's that had like his signature like ingrained in the bottom of the soul yeah and i thought it was the most amazing thing yeah i was like i need to get myself a pair but i never ended up doing so but i wasn't a huge basketball fan growing up i mean i would watch games from time to time but i it was nothing like you i just enjoyed playing it more i mean I obviously knew who lebron was but
0: being on the basketball scene, Kobe's were like the hottest thing, but when I understood what was going on, LeBron's at its peak, it was like around LeBron 8s. I got my first LeBron's, they were the LeBron 10s, the influence, like where did you get the idea to get shoes? Like for me, it was just, you know, even at camp, like we would see people wear nice shoes and even in school, but it was in the basketball side, I really wasn't into Nike basketball and Kobe's and LeBron's were really at their peak during that time when I wanted to get into shoes, so.
1: I mean i would strictly wear there was a period of my life where i would strictly just wear basketball shoes like they were the only shoes i'd wear i didn't even know a running shoe existed yeah like i would just wear whatever it was i had a pair of kd6s a pair of kd7s i had lebron 11s lebron 12s kd sixes. those probably my favorite shoes ever but
0: like nike basketball was such at a peak and I i love that you pointed that out that Everybody wore basketball shoes. It didn't matter if you didn't play basketball or you weren't playing basketball at the time. People wore basketball shoes casually.
1: I had a pair of uh, Steph Curry's first shoe. It was either the first or the second. It was also the Hornets colorway, blue and purple. No, that's interesting. Beat them to the ground. Just
0: the whole basketball sneaker scene during that time when I was getting it was so big. Like Adidas obviously had their guys with D-Rose and... A couple few others Uh, but i think nike basketball definitely was top runner for everybody that wanted shoes but under armor like you said also was another player obviously it's interesting what they're doing with now i don't know if you've heard but uh steph curry has his own like entity in under armor brand that's called the curry brand kind of how jordan is with nike interesting you have any takes on that
1: i mean i understand the perspective from Steph Curry, but I don't really get the Under Armour perspective because if they let Steph Curry have his own brand that runs under 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 Armour, I mean, I guess they still get the same benefits, but you still don't get that marketing for Under Armour. Under Armour is still a fairly small uh, company in comparison to Nike and Adidas, so I think you'd want the logo on as many of his shoes as possible. Yeah, no. Because I don't know who else is buying any other Under Armour shoes. 100%.
0: No, I agree. I think it was a premature thing to do, but it just talks about how Steph really took an Under Armour to new heights. I think the shoes they made five, six years ago, they were making like colorways and and silhouettes that were competing with Nike at the time. I think now it's... uh, you know, Nike basketball and all the other basketball brands have kind of died down in the perspective of wearing them casually, more performance based now. But I think it's dope that he can have a brand like Jordan can, but definitely a little premature. I think sneakers have made creators understand that if you can create something unique, you can classify that into a market and essentially make it an asset, which justifies market value. Obviously, the collecting aspect and in that everyone's own opinions and interests which i think many other markets understood as they started to classify things an example of that would be sports cards you know past time of hours like anyone else's how did you get into sports cards back when and now with its emerging market
1: well, in terms of sports cards i was really big into hockey when i was younger because as i mentioned earlier my uncle got me into the los angeles kings and so when i was younger basically target would have these boxes where you'd buy them for twenty dollars and it'd have just this random assortment of packs most of them had worthless cards but i wasn't really looking for anything worth of value i was just looking to get the kings and if i pull any card of the kings even if it was a no name or a minor league player i'd get extremely excited were you only opening hockey boxes or i know you said you weren't a big fan of basketball but you know i mean i'd I'd open some basketball from time to time but hockey was definitely the majority i wanted to touch on what i was saying earlier and that it's kind of funny looking back at the cards that i thought were my favorite and what I thought were going to be extremely valuable. If you look at them now, like their prices, they're like a dollar, two dollars, <laughs> like they're worthless no, cards. It's... But but they meant so much to me
0: back when I was younger. No, I get it. I mean, now everybody's, you know, chase card is a rookie card or a variation of a rookie card. Uh, but for me, you know, I just wanted to find my favorite player, favorite <laughs> team in there. Do you remember like the specific product, like the first one you've ever bought of, of
1: cards at Target? The thing that I would buy at Target was that collection of packs you buy it was a twenty dollar box it just was a collection of different things you'd have some regular upper deck packs in there you'd have some victory stuff a lot of score stuff Mm -hmm. i mean which most of it like turned out to be crap at the end of the day like you couldn't really pull much of value like looking at it from today's perspective out of those packs but i had a great time opening it yeah
0: no i was mostly opening basketball packs Uh, i do remember that Boxes I was opening were around that $20, $30 range, but I just remember looking at all the boxes The boxes I would buy would be NBA hoops uh, because for whatever reason those were the cheaper cards But I remember standing at that target the infamous target just like how there were the Beyblades There a few years after that, you know came sports cards. I just remember standing there and looking at the hoops boxes but more specifically the prism boxes and almost like drooling over them because they just had you know great colors in them obviously uh, taps into the marketing and uh, assortment of of things that they did with that box whether you know be putting your favorite player or you know just assortment of colors it definitely makes you want to open that product but uh we definitely weren't buying a hundred dollar boxes back then but do you remember selling anything or trading anything from opening those packs, or you were just purely collecting them and storing them away?
1: I know exactly where you're trying to get at with that question, and I don't like it. <laughs> so the story you're—I think you're provoking here—is uh, the camp we would go to, the summer camp. There was just a guy, and we would basically bet and wager certain cards when we would play like basketball. So we play a basketball game, and so we literally just play a one-on-one game to like 21 or something and the winner of that thing would get the cards that were wagered and that's really the only exchange of cards that I did back when I was younger because the only other person I knew that was involved in cards was you and we both had the same team so I wasn't going to trade you a Chris Paul card for anyone else when you know Chris Paul was Chris Paul. And Blake Griffin was Blake Griffin. It's funny, for whatever reason, like I could
0: never pull like a Chris Paul card from all the boxes I broke. I I just never
1: I remember I pulled one card out of Excalibur and I thought it was insane.
0: Like I Oh that you you, so okay. So you do remember some product then. Well obviously I remember some product, but Excalibur was one of those that like right now it doesn't even do anything, but I just remember like. I the, think it
1: was the sickest, the yeah, sickest it one was a out good, of all. I like the design. It was the nicest, the nicest cards. Can yeah. I ask you a question? Actually, yeah. mm-hmm. did you ever buy any cards like like straight up buy like a already pulled card off eBay back then? See, I didn't.
0: Right, it was like a mood kill or a buzz kill when I would go on eBay and search up my cards that I thought were worth at least like twenty bucks. Be like one dollar and 50 cents and that's where i was trying to get at you know i didn't know that anyone cared for sports cards back then you know you search up lebron james rookie card there's hundreds of thousands of listings and you know if you search lowest price there's ones up there for like 50 cents to a dollar So I didn't know anyone cared, but obviously sports cards have been around a long time. I wish I had done a little bit more digging because I love the collecting aspect of it. Obviously with the market we have now. Yeah, to answer your question, I never bought a card. I was thinking buying Chris Paul card for a while. I just never pulled the trigger because I didn't understand why it was 50 cents or a dollar.
1: The only card I remember, I only bought one card ever. And it was actually, it wasn't even a hockey card, it was a basketball card. It was a DeAndre Jordan jersey card. Interesting. It's a regular mem card. I'm sure it wasn't even worn by him in game. I just remember bidding on it, and, and I had my younger brother with me at the time, and we were both getting crazy hyped because, like, the timer would go down on eBay, and it was, like, 30 seconds, and then 15 seconds, and then I think I ended up winning the card at, like, $2.30 and yeah. or something.
0: I mean, the bids are always intriguing,
1: for sure. But, uh, yeah, after winning it, it just, like, felt uh, extremely joyous Yeah, winning that card off of the auction. No, that's dope, for sure. I get that. But talking about
0: like early events, so like before I had even got into sports cards, obviously I I said before that uh, Pokemon was the first thing. So I was trading Pokemon cards when I was little. I didn't know much about it, but obviously, you know, you know the chase cards, Charizard is one of the m- more looked out after cards, even Pikachu is not, you know, there's rare Pikachu cards, but for whatever reason, I think Char- Charizard holds its weight with uh, like a Michael Jordan rookie card today. I mean, I just wanted to say that I was always uh, Team Bulbasaur. <laughs> really? I would have thought you were the water type. Fuck,
1: I was the water type. I don't know why I said Bulbasaur. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, With, I was never in, I was never into Charmander in the fire type evolution.
0: Oh, I like that dude that he evolved from. He had like cannons in the. Yeah, Blastoise. That, that blast was my guy. Yeah, that dude was nice. So, yeah, so going back a little bit though, so the trades we would do, I don't know if you noticed. So, out of one pack, I the Giannis. at the time i didn't know who the hell Giannis was i didn't care for him and usually the guys with the long names were the guys that came from uh, different countries and they probably be out the league in two three years so i just used him as a bookmark it was a Giannis nba hoops rookie card when i got back into it that card in the psa 10 grade went for over a thousand dollars so yeah that was pretty bad but uh initially the card that i actually did uh keep I think I ended up trading for a Kevin Durant rookie card. It was pretty damaged, but uh, with the same
1: guy from the summer camp. Yeah,
0: I think so. I mean, I have no clue where it came from. It was like a 2000. He was in draft class of what? That was his rookie card, and so we sold it. Maybe like a a year ago uh, for uh, a good price. Uh, it wasn't gradable, but uh, I thought that was just crazy. How much did you sell it for? If you don't mind disclosing. Uh, I think it was like two hundred dollars. <laughs> So, yeah, so if you had those binders uh, in your homes with the cars filled, you might want to go through them and uh, check if they're worth anything now. But uh, let's talk about current market value. What do you think about the market today? And how did you get back into sports cards when you found out that,
1: uh, you know, there was such a booming market? I got back into sports cards through your brother because your brother got interested in this basketball. And he was like, you got to try this out. You got to you got to get on this. Even if it's not basketball, you got to try it out for hockey and just see what you can do with it i'm more into sneakers but
0: i definitely like cards as well but uh, i just want to help him more and found his own lane in hockey cards talk about how you found like a collecting aspect in
1: your entity with hockey cards and what do you think about the current market state the the current market in terms of hockey i mean it's just from the start of the season it hasn't really picked up whatsoever so i'm still waiting on it to pick up i don't know if it will but prices haven't really been fluctuating all too much i mean there was that insane boom when basketball went so basketball went first obviously then you had a slight boom in in soccer which was a little odd you had like these prism messy cards selling for crazy numbers one day and the next day they were like a tenth of the price for in terms of hockey i mean it it all got pretty big at one point like cards of of fairly big guys were selling for very cheap so then at one point hockey ended up receiving that uh boom as well and was it before we got you into it or um it was just about when i was getting into it maybe a little bit before because a lot of cards in hockey were pretty much worthless Mm -hmm. i mean you'd open the packs and then you'd lose money like it was significantly negative ev so obviously we talked about the
0: flipping aspect of sports cards I' have to realize that you have a collection of sports cars what are the cars that you like and what are some things that you're holding that and why do you see them raising value in, in the long term
1: I mean as growing up as a King's fan I was very much so attracted to the main three guys there in the in the 2012 and 2014 cup runs so you got andre Kopitar, who is now our current captain we have Jonathan Quick, and Drew Doughty. And Kopitar's the forward. Forward always holds the most value in hockey. So most of my personal collection of hockey cards really encompasses around Andrzej Kopitar. So we got this one Population 2 PSA card. The PSA 10 of his acetate. It's just a, an insert, a very short printed insert. But it's this clear card with a shiny base. of. It's kind of like a retro edition of his rookie. And that card, when I saw it, I just knew I had to have it because I just thought it looked so amazing. And it was a nod to his, obviously, his rookie year. So I have that card, and I also have his Future Watch autograph in a PS8 which is, uh, if you don't know what Future Watch autographs are, basically the main rookie card for hockey that's autographed. So they're usually numbered to 999, which my Kopitar is. Yeah, so
0: I don't want him to give all of them away because uh, we might have a video coming soon uh, of Brian's so-called personal collection but i do want to touch on the aspect uh talked about obviously the collecting aspect but you said uh you know there was a shiny card in there and for some reason like a lot of people are attracted to shiny stuff uh in the card space but you can take this anywhere you know obviously the most precious thing i guess we have in our world is gold right but if you think about it golden diamonds golden diamonds they're precious metals right but at the end of the day they're just shiny metals you know what I mean? Like, it's crazy. I
1: mean, they're, they're also rare,
0: which is they which are plays rare, a key aspect to but it. But that's the idea of sports cars, too. They can be rare in, in that aspect as well. And they can be shiny as well. Why does it have to be something like gold for it to obtain value? And that's, I think, the whole understanding of sports cars in general, the rarity and collectible aspect.
1: It's definitely an interesting take. I haven't thought of that, actually.
0: What do you think about cards that are autoed or have jersey swatches on them? Do you have any? Do you think they're undervalued,
1: overvalued? I I just want to say, when I was younger, I thought it was the craziest thing right. that you could get an autograph on a card, mm-hmm. or just any any autograph in general. I treated autographs as if they were some sort of high high value thing, and I mean, which they are obviously, but. As a kid, I definitely saw the memorabilia cards and autographed cards as something as something insane and unattainable, as they were usually more expensive as well. But uh, nowadays, I mean, I think it's cool to have the autograph of the player on, on the card or a or, or jersey swatch, for example, but it's not necessarily my go-to. Like, I can admire cards that don't have it. I can admire cards that do have it. Them not having a signature or a piece of memorabilia will not make or break the card for me. I, I usually tend to stick to the design. I like the design. If the design works, then I like the card. I mean, the patches and the. Some patches are, are interesting, and uh, obviously they would be cool to have, but. That- yeah, well, for
0: me, uh, like like you said, I, I appreciate it as well, but still consider it being a big thing. But it's crazy how autos and, and and swatches of, jer- of jerseys go for s- such insane prices. I think they're almost overvalued in today's market because authentic memorabilia has not seen like the whole jersey they wore in that game or shoes that they wore in that game. Um, you know, they're up there, but they're not nearly as expensive as cards that have swatches of them. And I understand there's a collecting aspect to it and they've kind of organize that so i can understand that but uh you know being considered more valuable than authentic
1: memorabilia uh in their full you know jersey or or whatever it is i mean yeah if you think about it it's even the ones that are numbered to low amounts it it doesn't compare to let's say owning the entire shoe from a basketball player from that game that's yeah. like autoed or like a basketball that's autoed from that game because there's only one of them that exists. It's a right. one of one. But you can also argue there's like a more collecting aspect
0: because, you know, people can, their values can be defined better because they're more collectible. But like, like you said, like I, I definitely don't understand why a Jordan rookie card would go for more than an actual shoe that Jordan wore in the game. Like that seems crazy to me
1: well a jordan rookie card is different but i'm saying like let's say there's a a card that's fairly recent like a card that's released nowadays in 2020 Mm -hmm. and has a piece of authentic memorabilia and jordan's signature that card i think will go for more than a pair of shoes worn in a game as well or a, a game a game ball well
0: yeah i mean though that's a different way
1: to look at it if you put both of those
0: things combined against one
1: I mean, a rookie is just kind of. I think the value behind the rookie is that it's a piece of history. It's the player's first ever card released, right? Um, so I think that's where the value comes from behind it. But for sure, it's not necessarily the the auto or the patch that's making or breaking the card, right?
0: No, definitely. So let's talk about um, how collectible sports cards are as an asset. I think it could be argued more of a collectible asset than sneakers. But I can also argue both sides. What's your
1: take on, on that? I like that they're smaller and they're portable. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you look at Jeffrey's house, it's sneakers. there's a whole wall of sneakers. So they take up a lot of space. But for me, I just have seven, eight graded cards. I just put in my closet and let them sit there. And they take okay. up no space. Like I said before, the collecting and uh, classifying aspect can get
0: very intriguing to a specific audience and now i think we see that more than ever and that with a big audience with nfts uh what do you think about nfts and just the idea behind them in general
1: it's still something i'm trying to get behind i mean i i do understand it to a certain extent but i mean then again i'm to understand the the technology behind it and the blockchain and Mm-hmm. and the individual's footprint on the, on the um, specific piece but I, i'm still trying to get behind it i mean i i have i own a few nfts myself mm. but i don't know i think the, the dictation of value is still a little scattered because sure. it's it's, so, it's solely on supply and demand and a project can go from crazy insane amounts to very little to none the next day which i don't like mm-hmm. i like some sort of stability i mm-hmm. want it to have some sort of value behind it some sort of utility So that it's always worth a certain amount. Right. Well, like you said, it also challenges, you know, the idea of selling
0: something, right? When you look at it, it's just a picture. But it's also like, obviously, like the classic, you know, sell me this pencil, which in a lot of people's minds can be interpreted like, why the fuck is this monkey going for hundreds of thousands of dollars that has uh, his tongue swirling around its mouth? but uh you know they're backing that in its utility and community let's talk more about what nfts are in general how we talked about before whether it be toys or video games whether it has a collecting aspect to it or a utility aspect to it that's something we admired when we were very young and now it's being classified sort of as an nft as it kind of bridges the gap between collecting and utility and ultimately pushing that to the max but now they're being backed by a currency uh owner of coinbase said that nfts can be bigger than cryptocurrency
1: itself what are your takes on that i think it's possible i mean if you're looking at the trends by which people are buying these nfts especially the big ones you're talking v friends you're talking Yacht aviatical you're talking CryptoPunks, all the big ones they just i mean they're already bigger they're already bigger yeah, the, then, 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 they're I mean, already they're region. already larger than than crypto. A bitcoin is what like oh. fifty six thousand dollars at the time of recording. People are buying crazy. these these board these board API piat clubs. They're buying V friends. They're buying CryptoPunks at as, at hundreds of thousands mm. of dollars, at millions of dollars. I think. Even. But so talk. You you talked about a few projects. What projects catch your eye the most? I mean, for me, I'd probably say the one that's been the most interesting, V friends, just because they have something behind them. And I was always uh, a big supporter of Gary V and the messages that he tries to spread. So seeing him kind of take over in the crypto and the NFT world, I think it's been great for the community over there. They have a crazy large Discord.
0: It's crazy like the prices that V friends are getting to. Well,
1: yeah, I remember he was selling these things for 0.5 ETH back when ETH was like $4,200 and I was even debating picking one up. But I was like, I mean, dude, when he dropped them, I was 17 years old. I don't have... $2,100 to spend. That's why I was always pushing for him to make some sort of a smaller, more accessible version, drop some at, at lower values that were, I guess, not as interesting or something. Just maybe he could produce more of them. But I, I always wanted him to do something a little smaller because if he was releasing them at $500, I'd probably own one right now.
0: Talking about the more in the positive light. I do like the OG NFTs, that of CryptoPunks, because if you think about it, investment standpoint, you know, the OG will get the most recognition, I feel like, but it's funny, you know, they're not, I don't think they're the biggest project right now. Obviously, we've seen what Bored Ape Yacht Club has done. I'm not the biggest fan of Bored Apes. I really like Mutants. I like the art of them. Utility is, you know, being able to go on a yacht and have yacht parties, which sounds crazy, but... It's based off the idea that the restaurants have been on, which is you you have to be a member to eat at a specific restaurant, and it costs hundreds of thousands of dollars. The same way that this NFT is used to get into a yacht party, which is kind of interesting because it gives you art and it's traded every day and is you know verified by the blockchain. So definitely the Apes, CryptoPunks. Uh, but more than anything else, I like moments in that of uh, what NBA Top Shot has done. What are your takes on NBA Top Shot? In terms of NBA
1: Top Shot, I'd probably... I think my personal stance on Top Shot is I like what they're doing. I like that the NFTs are videos, so there's kind of more than just a 2D aspect of an image there. Uh,
0: just for me, I can argue that maybe the traditional... Or rather, I personally like the idea behind moment NFTs more than the traditional NFT. Uh, I can argue that maybe the traditional NFTs uh, have more utility, but I think the moments are more intriguing at the moment as again, classifies a moment in history, uh, almost like a rookie card classifies the player's career as uh, the chase card. It's making it more collectible with more opinionated motives. As plays are a big thing in players' careers, imagine what MJ's last shot would be worth in today's day. I would bet
1: that would be a pretty penny <laughs> more than likely I'd say so you get to see the video You like you said it was a moment in history which is nice and it's cemented so you own it the only thing is like you said there's a lack of utility that really really bothers me is it's like I own this moment that fifty nine thousand nine hundred ninety nine right. other people own and it, what does it do it does nothing it shows me a clip of Giannis making a dunk that so many other people have access to right it doesn't give me any any benefits whatsoever
0: well so the the amounts are definitely an issue a lot of the top shot community is not a fan of you know the recently released season three as they've increased the amount of moments there are insane because we thought in season two they were more than enough and yet they increased that amount by two times times Uh, i'm not really sure where that's going but like i said i really like the idea behind it and i hope that uh, there can be a more rarity aspect to it as uh, we've seen in different markets that uh, supply is more than demand that market will ultimately crash so that might be a problem with the top shot but uh, you know i'm i'm curious to see how they find utility for top shot moments i mean they've uh, made challenges and uh, top collectors, they've made you know access to experiences uh, to go to games and stuff like that. Uh, I
1: still think they need to get the average consumer in on it because if you're only providing some sort of benefit to the people at the very top I don't see what's, the, what's encouraging more people to get into it.
0: Well, it's the collecting aspect, right? Like, if you know that there is a reward at being at the top, obviously it's a very money-draining process.
1: Yeah. Then again, to get at the top, you have to. I think you have to spend at this point millions of dollars. Right. So it's it's a very uh, hard entrance fee, uh, to say the least. But
0: I just want to focus more on the moments. I think that uh, Top Shots challenge to make more meaningful moments in that of almost establishing the top 100 plays for a player's career. Rather than just making a moment of good pass or or uh, an average shot, and I think the higher collectors should be awarded the better moments, per se. And I'm not sure that's the goal uh, currently. But what what are your takes on top shot debuts and the other badges that they have for uh, these specific moments?
1: I like the debut badge because it kind of signifies some sort of rookie moment. It's obviously the player's first created moment on Top Shot, the first NFT. Mm -hmm. Um, So I like that because it signifies something there. But I mean, beyond that, the badges really don't mean all too much to me. I mean, Mm -hmm. there's a rookie mint, which is nice to see, which means that uh, that the moment was minted in the rookie year of the player. But just overall, generally it, it really doesn't matter to me much. Like like you said, I'm I'm big on the um the moment itself and I'd rather own a moment that's interesting and has a staple in time that people will remember as opposed to something that has a little badge on it and it's just an average play, you know? For sure. So I think they should be more selective in picking the first moments for players definitely
0: you know they've done a good job at uh, trying to find what people like I don't know if you saw this but you know I'm really into the marketing aspect and uh, I love that they're trying to get the fans involved recently they posted a story of um, their season three debut moments of uh, rookies and uh, they gave the fans the choice to decide which moment would be their top shot debut I, I think I, I, sent, I sent that to you what did you think about that uh, they had like an Instagram poll Uh, on their stories. And uh, I think whoever won, uh, that was the moment, or whichever moment won was the moment they would ultimately release as as their top shot debut. I
1: definitely like that. I like the community involvement. Then again, it's strengthening the community and kind of providing, um, well, a feel for just a group of individuals that have the similar interest of not only the NBA, but collecting the NFT. So you're bringing people together. Mm-hmm. And it's also just a democratic process. You know, you got to You have to stand by it because the top shot is allowing people to choose what they want. Um,
0: so I think NFTs are um, arguably to say one of the biggest takeaways from COVID as ultimately it jump started the whole NFT world through our time in quarantine around the world. Uh, but What are some of the things that you did to keep yourself busy during quarantine?
1: During quarantine I wrote a lot of my college essays that was that was pretty much it I mean I sat around I played some roller hockey practice outside obviously because it was canceled so I, I I had to kind of create my own makeshift uh, environment outside and and do all that but it was a lot of sitting around a lot of a lot of watching YouTube not only just wasting time on YouTube but watching stuff that I was interested in just in general like intellectually whether that be like real estate or any anything else like bitcoin and, and the cryptocurrencies and i just kind of through my time during covid i realized how beneficial of a resource youtube is it's such a powerful thing to have probably the best most powerful social media that we have today because i think you can just find everything you need on youtube i just remember growing up my parents would always be like oh google this google that i don't even think it's to google it is even a good option anymore you just gotta have go straight to youtube because they'll show YouTube you what They'll show you what to do they'll show you how to do it and then you just implement what they do into your own life and it when it works Mm -hmm. so
0: obviously a difficult time for many to say the least but a victory for you was a college acceptance uh not sure if you want to mention the name or anything but um you know how is that process just in general from working as hard as you did through school to afford
1: you know basically the position you are in today in terms of school I really treated my four years of high school as just a stepping stone into getting into college. So, I was big on the grades, I was big on the activities that I would do, I played sports, I was involved in clubs, had some leadership positions. And all that was pretty much, the goal of all that was to get me into uh, my dream school, which was, and where I am now, the University of California, Los Angeles, UCLA. So I'm currently a freshman there, and, and I mean, it's been a little surreal for me to step on campus every day, realizing that I'm a student here because I treated it as such a place of high value, a place that was unattainable for me for so long. It was just such a goal for a long time and I thought it was an unreachable goal. Yeah, we talked about it a lot. that you that It
0: almost seemed outlandish to ever see yourself here, but, you know, not I mean, here. just
1: considering the numbers, the acceptance rates just keep getting lower and lower and it's like, if you think about it, 10% It seems like a little bit Right It really doesn't seem as, as little as it actually is If you're thinking about A 10% acceptance rate You have to realize For me to get into the school Nine other people Had to get rejected Which is just a crazy thought to have It's not bad If you think about it no? I mean t- Nine other people mm-hmm. Had to get rejected For me to get in here mm-hmm. That's that's crazy mm-hmm. That's Those odds are very low
0: Oh yeah Well if you think about odds But you know If you just think about Nine people standing In this room
1: Doesn't seem like a lot but I mean, if it's not about nine people, it's nine people for every person that's in here. So just my roommates alone, there were 27 people that were ejected mm-hmm. for us three to be here. That's crazy. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. It's nuts. 10% is, it's a lot less than what you look at it. You, I feel like people should look at, they shouldn't look at acceptance rate. They should look at rejection rates. Mm-hmm. Instead of being, it's like, oh, it's a 10% acceptance rate. It's possible. You should look at it and be like, oh, it's a 90% rejection rate. So obviously you said some key things, things that you did to get here, but do
0: you have any advice that you could give to people coming up trying to get into
1: college? Well, in terms of advice for college admissions, I'd say just put in the time, put in the work. Sometimes you'll have to give up that party. Sometimes you'll have to give up that social outing. But you have to sit down and you have to get through it, even if it's work you don't want to do. Because obviously in high school, there's a general... Education requirement there, where you're taking classes of all different types, even if you're not necessarily a big fan of history, for example, you still have to take a history class, and you still have to do well in that history class. So you got to sit down, you got to push yourself through it. Because when you get to college, I mean, you still have some general education requirements, and some schools don't even have GE requirements. You could just start taking whatever you want. You don't have to take a single history class or a single English class or a single math class if you don't want to. I wish I was in that standpoint. Yeah, there are there are a few schools that are like that with the open curriculum, but really, once you get through those years. The goal is you get to kind of hone in on what you're studying yourself, what right. what you're interested in. You can just take continuous classes of the topics in which you're interested in. And I think that's really the goal. That's what kept me pushing through It's because I knew that once I would get this history assignment done and get this history class done and then get all the history classes done and then get my history GEs done in college, I'd be able to study what I'm interested in. Right. Ultimately, it's a process. But talk about
0: how rigorous your... Just classes were in high school and uh, affording
1: you this opportunity here. I mean, our high school was a large, fairly large, fairly small. I guess it depends on the context. I think it's fairly small, right? 240 definitely, people in a smaller, smaller. A so. fairly smaller magnet high school that you had to get into off a lottery system. So I actually got in the ninth grade. You came in the 10th grade. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, the school, it kind of has its own reputation for being somewhat rigorous. It's a... Definitely rigorous. It's a highly highly touted school in the Los Angeles neighborhood where if people hear the name, they're like, Oh, you, you go you go here? Like you go to L- like how how are the studies there, you know? I mean they're usually been like fairly rough.
0: What was going through your head when you got accepted? Did you think, you know, if I work my butt off like I have a chance coming here or was it ever in the back of your mind or was it just purely just being the best you could in the classroom.
1: I mean, then again, UCLA was a goal, but it wasn't an overlooming goal that was always on my mind. Yeah. Like it was kind of something in the back of my head that I was working towards, but it wasn't actively pushing me to get work done, right? I wasn't sitting in my classes thinking, oh, I have to do this for UCLA. <laughs> like was, that, that wasn't my thought process. I was just doing the best I could, learning what I, what I could along the way, and just seeing where it took me. And then when I had applied to colleges locally, it worked in my favor, what I had done and what I had taken from it. Mm-hmm. But beyond grades and academics there, I mean, there's a whole other sector of college admissions, if not multiple more sectors. I mean, you have your essays, every you standardized testing, with the, which they're starting to get rid of, which I like a lot, actually, because I've, I've always found it as a disadvantage to me because personally, I'm not the quickest test taker. I've always <laughs> been somebody that likes to take their time. And I don't even understand why they time you on those tests in the first place. I mean, you're trying to see how, how bright I am, how smart I am, whether or not I can answer these general questions about math or English. And I don't know why you have to put this pressure on me to work at a certain pace. I'm not going to get any smarter by sitting and using my brain for longer. Yeah. So so. I don't understand. Some people work at different paces, which is why I don't like, I never like the the time limits. And that's that's just the education system here because you're given this amount of time to take a test
0: but nonetheless you know it was it was something you worked for for a long time when you got when you heard the news that the SAT test and other test requirements were not required for your admission to
1: whatever college you wanted to apply for Uh, What did you think? Were you mad? Were you happy? I was obviously ecstatic. I mean, my SAT wasn't horrible. I think the first time I took it without studying, I I would have kept studying. I broke it in that 1400, 1450 uh, median here, but it was not that I wasn't smart enough or wasn't able to do well on this test, but the time, it really had me struggling. Mm -hmm. I'd get to the end of the English section and I'd still have another one to go when my time ran out. So that was obviously extremely nerve-wracking and I wasn't able to perform to the best of my abilities. And I think that the the University of California in general and, and a lot of schools all over the country are starting to re- recognize that this test necessarily isn't built for everyone. So that's why they're scratching it in, in, in general. It definitely
0: wasn't built for me. That's for sure. Point, but I want to talk to you more about why you were ecstatic uh, when they got rid of the SAT. Obviously, you had invested a lot of time into studying for it. Correct. But now it was kind of like a relief that your test didn't matter, but you still had all that work that you had put into it. Was was that like not even the question or, I mean,
1: I had put in some work, so obviously that's a sunk cost, mm-hmm. but there was still more to be done. So the fact that that weight was kind of lifted off of my shoulders, I was just happy that I didn't have to work out okay. anymore. I could focus on a different aspect of uh, my application in the essays. Right. So let's talk about the essay portion, um, you know. This is not your
0: Princeton review, but I just want to talk about how important it was to shed yourself not only in the brightest light, but talk about yourself in the um, authentic version of yourself as as much as possible and really catering to uh, why you are
1: the best candidate. I think it's extremely difficult, first of all, to Put your entire life story in in four two hundred fifty word essays, I actually I, like it though. I thought that task was extremely daunting because obviously I don't denounce myself to four two hundred fifty word essays. I think my life is far more complex, and I've had far far more experiences that can be I can write on for days. can you would you like to disclose S-
0: what you talked about since you only have four four hundred five hundred words? to write about what what could you write about or what did you write about
1: well I had written about this was once again I was writing them during COVID so this was when I was into the sports cards a lot a lot I was spending most of my time just researching cards and stuff so I I wrote one about sports cards I wrote one about um, my transition from physical sports to esports and how I was able to adapt pretty much from the instances with the coronavirus when it came into effect everybody kind of Was lost because the swimmers had to get out of the water, basketball players had to get off the court, soccer players had to get off the field. Everybody was gone, like they were lost, and they a lot of people lost their relationships, they lost their teamwork abilities, everything that comes with physical sports. They had lost, but I wrote about basically my ability to adapt and turn that into the to esports and the esports program that came high school year during COVID. Me and two of my closest friends we actually played on the Rocket League team, and I mean. Once again, if you think about the story from an admissions officer's perspective, it doesn't really tell you much. I told them that I enjoy playing video games, but I was able to craft that story and kind of provide insight on what that did for me and how that helped me through the times of COVID, which I think they really enjoyed, honestly. And it showed my ability to adapt to unprecedented situations.
0: Like you said, I think it challenges people to understand more about themselves and ultimately, my goal with this podcast is to do just that, understanding yourself uh, as much as possible. because you know, once you understand what you're good at, what you're not good at, you can use that to your benefit, whether it be your work or whatever else you want to do. It just gives you a ground to understand which to dig in. So obviously, you talk about your experiences with COVID. Was there another essay? Other than the two that you mentioned, or was it just those two?
1: No, there were four, but...
0: Those were the ones that stuck
1: out to you. Um, Those two stuck out to me. I also had this one essay that... Well, I went to this um, Chauvinet camp for, I'd say, five five or so years now. I've been going there, from, and I've been going to consistently. I met a lot of good friends through there. But, camp, there is a unit for incoming ninth and 10th graders. It's called Task. It's an acronym for Teenage Service Camp. And basically, the goal of this unit is to give back to the community that once gave to you. So you spend the two weeks there at the overnight camp, spending two hours a day in the burning sun building a project for the camp as a way to give back. So for our year, we built this amphitheater on the side of a hill. And it was actually, I remember this moment very vividly. It was the first day they took us to this hill. It was like, there was a trail to get up there. And once we got up, we just saw this entire field of like wheat that we had to clear. It was just dead grass and wheat.
0: How crazy did it it seem to think that you were going to build something like that there?
1: I mean, I just, I didn't know how we were going to do it, but I knew we were going to do it. So we had to get (laughs) to work immediately. So I remember the first day we got up there, counselors had yelled at us, you know, sunblock hats and nobody wanted to wear them. No, no,
0: you don't like wearing goddamn sunscreen.
1: No, yeah, I hate the sunscreen. I hate the hats. The first day I, I went up there, we did the work, we cleared the field but uh i came back looking like a tomato so from Perfect. day from day two on i had to i had to uh, comply with my counselor's requests and wear the the hats and the sunscreen but yeah anyways we we spent these two weeks building this project right and we built an amphitheater so it had a big stage in the bottom and a series of four be- of four benches on each side that we had to like level and everything S- cement blocks pour liquid cement and concrete but we had finished this project And I remember nobody had wanted to take pictures of it. I don't know why, but for whatever reason, my uncle had picked me up on the last day. I took him up there because I was extremely proud of what we had done as a unit, as a group. And I think it really brought a lot of us together. But I went and I brought my uncle there and I showed him the project and he was just... I remember taking pictures while I was up there that day. And then, unfortunately, during the fall, there had actually been the Malibu Woolsey fires that burned down the whole project. So right after we built it, The whole campsite burned down including our project that we had worked so hard on not just the hillside a lot of not just the hillside the whole camp we're currently operating at a different location right now but it had burned down this project that we had spent so much time on and we had such a strong connection to so i basically wrote about my process through that and even though the project was gone you you obviously take the experiences that you take from it you it wasn't just a physical project that brought us together it was The experiences we had gone through through building it and the friendships we made through that that really just stuck with me. And I talked about obviously giving back and once we return to the old campsite, once everything gets rebuilt, I want to come back as a counselor for campers and possibly be the unit head for that age group and help kind of provide another means for these kids to give back to their community and learn exactly what I did through that time. I think you touched on
0: a key point there. I think our experiences can be argued more beneficial than our education at times especially when you're younger but even when you're older our experiences can not only motivate ourselves but more importantly understand our, ourselves better in, in learning again our strengths and our weaknesses obviously it was a it was a big thing for you to build that site but how m- much more was it of a loss to you when you had heard that
1: it ultimately burned down I mean, obviously we were, we were, all of us were sad from the beginning, but you know, that's just, sometimes you have sad moments in your life and there was nothing that we could do to bring it back. I mean, we could come back and rebuild it at some point, but I had kind of, I had settled on taking what we had learned through there, taking the friendships and just the memories that we had and building pretty much just building on that because we have to be grateful for what had happened there too. Because I mean, although the project isn't there, it was still such an amazing experience. And I still am in close contact with many of my friends from that unit, from that summer that we built. Actually, one of them is currently my roommate at UCLA, which is crazy to think of. Crazy how how that worked out too, right? So yeah, thank you for sharing that.
0: But um, now that you're in this position, like we said today, where do you see yourself in this program, but more importantly in life in general, in in the short term and the long term? What are some goals you don't mind sharing but listening?
1: I'd say... One issue with many people's goals nowadays is a lot of them are material goals. we want a big house. we want a nice car. My goals in life, I want to be content with myself. I want to be a smart individual. I want to learn what I want to learn. And I want to be good at the career that I end up wanting to pursue. So, as long as I'm enjoying my line of work and I'm doing it effectively, I think I'll be extremely content with that and and happy.
0: Well said. Oh. I think that wraps up the episode of the Soul Talk podcast. This is your host, Jeffrey Tashlick. I cannot thank my guy, Brian enough. I think uh, he gave a lot of great information to you listening. I hope you took something out of this. And remember the saying, be a soul, not a body. Peace.